Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. We're still in quarantine. We got Jim, Farbs, and Ed, and today we got a special guest in the booth, Dr. Robert Gore. He's a CNN hero. He's an ER doctor over at Kings County in Brooklyn, and he's got a, a laundry list of accomplishments, which we're going to get into. So we're chatting with him about his personal experience working on the front lines during COVID, the largest societal impact of that, how he's keeping his mental health together, and how you should too. So sit back and enjoy. Is this week four on Zoom? Yep. Well, Jim, why don't you take it away uh, and let everyone know who we got on uh, on the pod today? Yeah, so Dr. Gore is um, <clears throat> just a brother of mine. Uh, we met maybe about five, six, seven years ago, something like that. Just like 10. Wow. Like wow. wow. Yeah, just, um, you know, I mean, I've been very lucky to... Um, meet a lot of solid people along his journey, and he's been one of them. Uh, he's a, just a special individual. I know it's awkward to talk like that about you while you're here. Um, he's worked all over, the, all over the world, pretty much. Spent time in Haiti, even speaks a little Creole. Uh, always hey. mentioned me about my peoples. Just a wise mind all around, not just in medicine, but in history and politics and the work um, he does around the country and the world and working in some of the, the hardest hit areas when it comes to gun violence, trauma, um, mentorship, whatever it is. So Dr. Gore, I'm really honored to have you on and especially want to thank you for uh, everything you've done in the last six weeks or so. But everything you've done prior to that in general, working in Haiti during an earthquake. Um, I remember you made a statement to me two weeks ago. You said that what you've seen in the ER here in Brooklyn kind of like bring back memory of the things you've seen while you were working in Haiti. Can you get into that a little bit in terms of what brought you into medicine, first of all? Um, and one of the things I've always thought about is how challenging it must be for you to be in the ER where you're seeing hundreds of thousands of young men coming in and out that looks just like you um, and your little brothers and such. So I figure we'll just jump right into it and just have a quick conversation before you go run to the ER. Man, so like, you know, like this, the journey to medicine, like I always, I always wanted to be in a space to help our people heal and be at their best. And I kind of borrowed that statement from my dad uh, who's also an activist and uh, but involved in media as well. Um, you know, when he was growing up, he didn't see a lot of images of us that looked uh, very promising. And he always wanted to put our people at their best. And so he uh, and my mother also kind of carried that and passed that on to me. My mom taught in Bed-Stuy for like 25, 30 years before she retired and also wanted to make sure she was able to educate um, our youth and, and, and put them in a different space than they came in. Uh, previously, also putting them at their best. And so me doing medicine is kind of an extension of, of what they experienced. Uh, you know, I, I'm an emergency physician. 
And what that means is um, my, my specialty and my training is in emergency medicine. Uh, my, uh, my chairman uh, at Cook County Hospital in Chicago, where I did my training, uh, called us emergentologists. And he said, this is an individual who is trained and specializes in dealing with any given emergencies. Those emergencies may be man or human made, they may be natural disasters, they may be outbreaks or pandemics, uh, but the goal is to make sure that you're trained at keeping people alive in uh, under resource constraints as well. So like the stress itself and like, and what's going on right now with the, with the pandemic itself, it's in one sense, it is no different than, than what I've been caring for in the past. And I've been in, in, in central Brooklyn at downstate in Kings County, by the way, I have to just kind of disclose the, the comments and the, and the, and the opinions are my own and not, not the institutions. Um, but I, I've been working, you know, at Kings County and downstate for, it'll be 14 years in July. Um, I was at Cook County in Chicago uh, before that for four years. And so my, you know, my 18 or close to 18 years as a physician have always been working in areas that were underserved, resource limited, with black and brown patients and, 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 and folks who were poor and marginalized and, and people who were uh, immigrants and not necessarily wealthy immigrants, um, immigrants who are coming here for better, better opportunities. And, and so like pretty to, much my dad. Yeah. Oh yeah. And your dad is, you know, like, like the perfect, literally the perfect patient you're describing. Yeah, no, this is, and so like, this means a lot, you know, I, I came back to Brooklyn to practice medicine in 2006, uh, because, you know, I wanted to come back home. Um, I'm, the hospitals are literally across the street from my elementary school. I went to PS 235, yep. <laughs> embodying that whole, that whole concept of full circle. Uh, but, you know, what we're, what we're experiencing right now is stuff that it, it's catastrophic, um, but it's, it's, it's also a, we're developing a different understanding of, of how we interact with people, not, not even just the disease process itself, but like how does our society function at its, at its most optimal state? Uh, when, you're, when you're a resource-constrained, uh, limited place and you don't have all the stuff that you need to survive, you start getting creative. I, I think about some of your stories growing up in Haiti and then going, coming to Crown Heights and even you know, where you are right now, but you, you start to learn how to become creative in order to survive. And so right now we're, we're trying to get to that place where we can just survive. Then after that, like, how do we take it to another level so that people can actually do well? Right. And, and stop surviving and actually start living and thriving. Start living and thriving. Uh, with, with any kind of disease process or, or with any, any outbreak, with any disaster situation, you have the initial catastrophe itself. So in Haiti, it was the earthquake. Here yeah. we're dealing with COVID-19 and the symptoms surrounding that. Um, so you, you know, as far as an emergency, your, your job is, you know, we, we use what we call the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation, because if you can't maintain a person's airway, if that person isn't allowed to, if they're not breathing, uh, if they're not maintaining circulation, meaning their blood isn't circulating and moving around, that person's going to die. And so like the immediate thing that we focus on is the survivability. And with the, with the, with the disaster itself, we focus on the injuries and the illnesses that are related to that incident itself. In 
the next phase is when you start seeing all the other stuff that starts to unravel because of infrastructure. And in addition to people coming in with they were already experiencing and dealing with well before this, this catastrophe has taken place. And so first is like just COVID-19, COVID-19, COVID-19. Now, like five to six weeks after, almost even seven weeks, when we started really starting to hear about stuff around the world. Um, you are now seeing people who are coming in with an exacerbation of their previous health condition, which in many instances was the result of poor conditions and limited access um, to, to be able to thrive. You know, we know I remember. You so, know, Dr. Go, I'm sorry to, to cut you off. Um, but, you know, I, I, obviously I'm not as articulate and as wise as you are. Um, yeah, you make some, <laughs> say that again. You're making me seem like I'm some kind of Yoda. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just, I just want to start some trouble a little bit. You are, in some ways, you're not the, the, the traditional uh, doctor, right? And what I mean by that is you've made it your business to take the experiences that you're describing now of our people mm-hmm. in these marginalized communities and push for the advocacy side. Like you see what's happening, you know what's happening. And you say, you know what? Instead of just being in the, in the ER, I'm going to start caveat, right? Kings against gun violence. I'm going to use my voice. I'm going to use my platform to push some of the underlying conditions, which our people have been suffering from, which made this COVID-19, you know, such a pandemic for us, right? As all of the things you're describing now. So I guess I just wanted you to put that in simpler terms in okay, some I, ways, you know, just for the average person listening. So I, I think with, again, with any, any process that you're dealing with, you, you want to keep people alive. And then you get to a point where you're only keeping people alive and not allowing them to live uh, properly. And you recognize the resources that are required to do so. And so if you're spending all this money and all these resources to to almost put a Band-Aid approach in you, and you, you have patients that are coming back in with recurrent symptoms and recurrent issues and ailments, and you start recognizing the patterns, it's important to, to realize what can be done that can alter and, and augment the situation that we're dealing with. And so you, you really start looking at causality. You start looking at the cause of the cause of what people are presenting with. You know, in the case of, you know, the work we do with Kavi, uh, we're looking at, at gun violence and just overall interpersonal violence and trauma, not necessarily like gun violence was, was a small fraction of it, but, you know, that was one conflict. What are the series of events that, that led to an individual wanting to take another life of another person? Uh, what, are the, what are the life circumstances? What are the educational circumstances? What are the needs? What are the, what are the insecurities that that are often associated with trauma and anxiety and longstanding trauma and chronic trauma that has an impact on our physical bodies and our mental body and in our, in our, in our mental states that don't allow us to be able to move forward and, and care for our families and care for our communities. And so you start looking at every single thing, um, like there's this thing in public health that's used that, that we call social determinants of health. And those are circumstances and situations that impact health and well-being of a community. It's where we live. It's the access to healthcare facilities. It's access to healthy food, uh, economic development, uh, infrastructure. There, there's, there's, there's which are all man-made, by the way. Obviously, in in this country. Right. Right. Well, so, they, far, 
Yeah. Farber and I, Dr. Go, we often get into a lot of fights, right? We'll be talking about, let's say, high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And then I say, well, uh, housing is a part of that. And Farber will be like, why are you going to housing? You know, we're talking about high blood pressure. Why are you all over the place? And my argument is that they're all literally connected. You cannot separate anything in America. From I'm, I'm going to defend myself here for a second. <laughs> you better defend yourself. You're throwing in your argument right here. <laughs> Anyone who knows Jim, he will take any time he feels like he's losing the conversation and throw in the Trump card, which you can throw into any conversation ever, which is systemic injustices. But it's not a card if it's real. Right? It's not a card if it's real. You're not always talking about macro stuff. Sometimes you're talking about a specific issue. So anyway, I actually want to go back to some macro stuff, though, because you, you were all looping it in, Dr. Gore, but actually you were basically outlining the case of any sort of pandemic or earthquake or ma- massive thing, right? So you were talking about the ABCs, then you were pushing that into the exacerbation of pre-health conditions. Right. You talked about some of those things right now, obviously, as it pertains to specific communities, but can you continue that loop? Because you're basically, I think we're giving like the timelines as it stretches out. Right. So, so you, 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 are, you have our society, right? You have this, this influx of COVID-19 cases, which starts to spread from community to community to community. Um, and, and whether or not stuff came from China, whether or not it came from Italy, uh, this is all some stuff that's subject to debate. Um, but the bottom line is you've got something coming in. And the goal is to kind of minimize or mitigate the, the number of cases, but also keep people alive and healthy who've been affected. But like in a disaster situation, you're taking care of those, those, those initial cases. The, the next phase is, is typically where you start seeing the, when people start coming back out, you know, out of, out of hiding, and you start seeing exacerbations of those conditions that they'd already been experiencing. And so like people who are diabetic, um, haven't, if you haven't left the house, or you hadn't had, there's an issue with your insurance, you haven't been able to get a hold of anybody, you can't get to a hospital because you're afraid of going in and getting infected because you're considered to be imminent compromised. You're not going to have your medication for a while. So you come in with an exacerbation of those chronic illnesses, which is often what happens in general with our communities because, you know, we work in public and resource limited settings. If you don't have the money or if you're, if you're a worker and you work, you're undocumented, you work um, part-time, you have a series of part-time jobs, because your employer can't hire you or won't hire you full time, you don't get you don't necessarily get those benefits, and so you wind up being you make enough money to to keep your family alive, but you don't have some of those other benefits that come from working at a full time employment type of place. And so, in, in the, if you if you miss work, that means you you miss you can't make money, and so you'll put off your health and you know well being just because you need to make enough money for your family to stay alive. But then that stuff has a way of creeping up. And so the hypertension, the diabetes, the high cholesterol, the kidney issues, all of a sudden that stuff becomes, um, you start having major complications from those issues because you are avoiding going to a hospital. Maybe you were fearful, maybe you didn't have the resource or you couldn't take off. And so these are the same kind of thing, conditions and things that we're seeing right now with COVID-19 cases. Uh, you've got patients who are coming in with exacerbations of their high blood pressure, their problems with their, with their diabetes, kidney stuff, mental health issues. Um, and that stuff doesn't stop. It, it kind of went down for a little bit, but now those things are kind of coming back up again. And, and, and it's scary because once, once the floodgates are open back up and people are, you know, 
if people, if the if the governor is saying, okay, we're gonna open New York back up, and the mayor says we're gonna open New York City back up, if you haven't gotten well already, you're gonna still spread that disease. So you you run the risk of that infection spreading more and more and more. Uh, and those people who are already marginalized, who don't always have access to the same sets of resources, tend to be those who are impacted the most. So uh, we, yeah. So Dr. Gore, I'm gonna jump in again. Um, one of the things I'm afraid of is that the policymakers, the Cuomo's, the Blasio's, and uh, the other asshole in Washington will see, see uh, what you're saying now. They will say, well, okay, we're losing jobs. We need to open back up the country. We see them protesting to open back up the country. And I'm afraid that they'll look at these numbers, the data's coming out and say, oh, oh, it's just Jim's father's dying. Poor black guy, 58 years old, central Brooklyn. Let's open things back up. Like, you know, th those are not our sort of like power holders on the Upper West Side in Park Slope. Right. Um, as, 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 as a person in the middle of this, when you hear these conversations about we're going to open back up in, you know, May 1st or May 15th, how does that sit with you? you no, know, it, it, it's a scary thing. And um, I, I, just, I just talked to um, some students at Morehouse College. Uh, we did a Zoom with the, with, the, with the faculty and student body um, about an hour ago. And I, we brought up the same issue. Um, it's not like some people know, some people don't know. I've been staying in the Airbnb. This is, I'm entering my, this is week four, four and a half weeks. Uh, my wife is six months pregnant. And, um, Congrats, have, by the way. thank Congrats. you. Man. Yeah. Um, thank and, you. and we have her cousin staying with us and other people there. And I can't, I don't want to leave. I don't want to go in from where I'm working. Cause I'm working around tons of COVID-19 patients confirmed, suspected, you're doing intubations and airways, so people, there's, there's, you know, there are fumes and breathing, so I have all the PPE stuff, but I always wonder, am I an asymptomatic carrier? Because we've had plenty of healthcare professionals, some of which we don't know, many of whom we do know, who are in serious and critical condition because of COVID-19. And I don't wanna run the risk of bringing that stuff back home. There's still so much stuff that we don't know about this disease itself, that it would be foolish for us to go back to a state of normalcy or as normal as possible. Cause for some people normal sucked anyway, but to go back to and not really fully understanding the repercussions of, of opening up uh, the city or the state or even the country. Yeah. Um, I anticipate that I'm going to be away from my family for another four weeks, maybe even five or six, because I don't want my wife catching anything. I don't want to run the risk of bringing stuff back home. I haven't seen my parents. Uh, my mom took a fall. Uh, she's okay right now, and so I wound up going over there to, to help her. But it was a terrifying feeling for me to go over there because I was like, I, it was one day she told a home attendant don't come because it was pouring rain out. And one day she told her not to come. And I was so fearful because, you know, we're in the thick of COVID-19 stuff. You know, I had intubated some patients and tried, you know, and... I, I'm, you know, you know, full clean clothing on, multiple, like a, an N95, a mask on the outside, you know, stuff that I don't wear in the hospital. And I'm like, and in gloves, and I'm helping my mom up off the floor so we can get her back into the bed. She just felt a little weak and was a little dehydrated, but didn't have any injuries. But I was so fearful that I'm going to transmit something to my mom that I was like, I don't, I, I was just terrified. I haven't seen my dad in six weeks. And my father lives in Brooklyn. He lives in Flatbush. 
Um, and I'm taking these precautions and wearing all this crazy flipping headgear. Let me show you the, the new one I got just because I'm around so much stuff. Like most people don't wear things like this. This is like some freaking Return of the Jedi kind of, <laughs> um, you know, X-Wing. Yeah. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Just quick question. Has there been any, any uh, prioritization in terms of testing for COVID or antibodies for healthcare workers? Is that, has that so, changed at all? So there, so there are a couple of things. in terms of like COVID-19 testing, like I've never been tested for COVID-19. I did, however, get selected to do like an antibody test. Um, however, honestly, it doesn't make a difference. If I, if I test positive for COVID-19 and I don't have any symptoms, I still got to come to work. If I test negative and let's say I'm a false negative and then maybe about 20% of false negative, meaning you test negative, but you actually do have the disease process. So when it, this is not like a foolproof test at all. Um, you know, I did an antibody test like a, a few days ago. And if I do have antibodies, it goes great. I was probably exposed to it, but nobody knows how long these antibodies are going to stay within your system. And now I'm not a virologist. I'm not an immunologist. Um, I, I, I read stuff, but uh, I'm not an expert in that. But this, you know, one of the things they, they tell us is that we don't know if you, you know, if you have antibodies, what this actually means. It's not like you're studying the flu or other viruses that people have been exposed to for decades around, around the world. Um, and so they're, they're gathering all sorts of information. And so people, you know, they're gathering this information to see if this is going to make a difference later on down the line. This has nothing to do with right now. This has everything to do with later on a few months from now and next season when this stuff comes back. Uh, if, it, if, it, if, it, if it does go away, it's going to come back. Um, so in terms of like COVID-19 testing, there are a lot of people are like, man, they're not testing the black community. They're not testing brown folks. Um, I turn people away all the time and I'm like, yo, you probably do have it. They're like, well, how do you know if you don't test? I was like, you got all the symptoms that we've been, been looking at. If you can breathe comfortably, if you're not oxygen saturation levels aren't low, if you're not having any crazy heart palpitations and you're not feeling dizzy or lightheaded and your symptoms get better with Tylenol and Gatorade and Powerade and coconut water and just regular hydration, then go home. And because it's not going to make a difference if you locked yourself into a bubble after receiving a negative test. It's different, but you're not. You're going back to your home where other people are there and you're interacting with people on the outside and you're coming in contact with surfaces. You're not cleaning properly. You're not making, taking necessary precautions. You are going to get sick. And then you go, oh, man, I, I tested negative last week. How did I get sick? It's like, well... You were exposed. You decided you're gonna smoke your Newports outside with the homies, and you're gonna share. You're gonna share a spliff, which you know you have the mask, but you have the mask down like this, and you're gonna share it, and you're gonna pass this thing around from person to person because people say black folks can't get Rona. Um, you know, it's just a lot of it's a lot of it's a lot of miseducation around it. Um, the go the whole thing is, you know, things that actually keep people safe. I don't I don't I can't I don't want to debate on stuff that. And it doesn't have any meaningful outcomes because um, the people are making this whole COVID-19 testing. They go, we need to get tested. We need to get tested. You got the symptoms. Stay your ass at home. Stay your ass at home and you don't risk exposing this stuff to other people. That's the only way you're going to wind up suppressing this disease process. But people have made it about the testing and it's not really going to have a major outcome. Testing is more for our surveillance purposes. Dr. Gore. I see the patterns. I want to jump in just a little bit. When you say stay home, which I agree with a thousand percent, what about the individuals like 
you got three generations that lived in a two bedroom, right? Yeah. Like the idea of staying home is a luxury for a lot of people, right? I mean, you, you got the homeless, you got so many, you know, I was on a train last night, man, it's dark down there. Oh, it's dark down there. And you can see all the newly homeless people, right? You see kids in the train station, like, it's crazy, it's bad. You know, Edwin tells me he picks up homeless people off the bench that are already dead. Um, how about that? How about the circumstances again, which makes social distancing and the, the six feet apart um, methods so hard for a lot of a lot of people because of the same reasons we talked about earlier. New York City is so is is, is so difficult compared to like I, you know I, you know we have you know friends that are around the United States and social distancing in Los Angeles and and, and I, I spoke with a woman who was in Arizona was it, yeah she was in Arizona in like Tucson uh, social distancing in Tucson Arizona is a very different experience with social distancing in Central Brooklyn. Um, or in New York City as a whole, because we don't we don't have space. You know, those of us who do have space and, and houses and stuff, that's a luxury. Um, we move up, and so if you got five people in one in a one bedroom, um, you know, it's the likelihood of somebody getting that disease transmitted to them is pretty high. But if you have people in that five in that one bedroom, and folks are in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, somebody's going to get sick. And it's usually the person who's not in a position to fend off, uh, to fight off that illness. Yep, and and you're talking about my dad. Literally, I called him a week prior, and I said, "Hey, all the time, right?" And I said to him, "I said, you know, this thing is out and about, and you know, his roommate comes in and out. She's working. She has to work. She's she's that other worker that you talked about, right? Literally has to work. So yeah, yeah, immigrant it, it, Asian woman. She has a child." She's going in and out. He's chronically ill. And I knew it was coming. Right. And then his word to me was, you know, I'm washed by the blood of Jesus, so I should be fine. Yeah. Um, and, you know. Look, you can be washed by the blood of Jesus or, or whomever you, you pray to, but protective equipment, it becomes really important. So I can understand if we were maxing out what we already have. You know, the living situation, that's an entirely different issue. Uh, at, at hand. Uh, and, and hopefully we, you know, with the different administrations and, and other activists and people on the ground like yourself, that we can start opening up and figuring out like, how do you make adequate safe spaces for people? You know, that's why we do all the work with trauma and youth and marginalized folks to make sure that they have safe spaces. This is no different. But having a mask, not smoking, uh, covering your mouth when you cough with your elbow, all these different things can help decrease transmission. If you have soap, washing your hands, you know, you know, these are all things that we can that we can do. The housing situation is 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 it's so tough dealing with New York City. We got to take public transportation. If you got a car, it's a luxury. If you if you if you um you know have uh, an, an extra room in your apartment or a house, that's a luxury. If you have money and resources. Uh, and like, you know, me, like I, I'm paying, I paid out of pocket for Airbnb, me and my roommate, uh, who's another ER doc, who's, uh, he and his wife have a three-year-old, you know, we came in and chipped in and then I have other friends who chipped in and donated so I can stay safe uh, as a frontline worker. Those are luxuries that not everybody has, but you can cover your mouth. You can wash your hands. You can wear a mask if you don't have one. If you don't have a mask, you can make one with a bandana. I know a, cat, a lot of cats flagging out there repurpose those bandanas 
and just to prevent prevent from coughing. Speaking of Dr. Go, I've never been so traumatized in my life, man. I'm walking around. <laughs> and I see a bunch of people with flags on, you know, and I'm like, flags on their face. Even the mayor, the mayor had a blue flag on it. I'm like, whoa, which kind of speaks to how <laughs> what we've been conditioned, right? You know, with as kids. And now even seeing those flags, I'm like. That's crazy. You know, I remember I couldn't wear those flags. So, you nah, know, man. little things like that. <laughs> I, I used to wear them when I was a kid, but I also grew up in a time when we didn't have Bloods and Crips in New York. So it wasn't right, like... Yeah, like Deceps, right? Deceps, yeah, Deceps. Low Lives. Deceps, Low Lives, Critters, Izod Posse. Yep. Um, there's so many different <laughs> things that were out there uh, in, in, in Brooklyn. Uh, low profile. There's so many different things. But, um, you know, when I wear my mask, uh, I just in general, I'm I'm a black man. I'm six foot three. Yeah. Um, I wear boots. I I don't look. I don't wear like tight clothing. I'm no no offense to the skinny jeans generation, <laughs> but but no like no people don't assume I'm a physician. Yeah. Uh, You're black black. Me. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I travel with, like during this time. I wear my SUNY down say Kings County uh, jacket. I got my ID. I've always, I always travel with my ID that says I'm a physician because I get pulled over to it. it, it I don't get yeah. into that. Um, uh-huh. Now they kind of leave me alone a little bit more because I got gray hair in my beard now. But that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, we talk but, about that all the time on this podcast: the criminalization of even a physician like you. Yeah, who yeah some I, of these people will be in your ER asking you to save their lives, but yet pulling you over and. Yo, but no, I, I got, I got a, I have a policeman's benevolent association card in my wallet that the detectives give me that says I'm a doctor or physician working in the hospitals. I wear my hospital ID badge. I got to be real. My job is to get to and from the hospital as safely as possible. And then if I can do that, then I can care for other people. It's not a matter of, you know, you know, yes, we need to fight some of these civil liberties related to discrimination and marginalization. But if I'm not around tomorrow, I can't fight these battles. And one of the questions I know you yeah. brought up a little bit earlier is like, you know, like why did I even like doing Kavi work and doing a lot of community work uh, in general? And how does this relate to the COVID-19 thing? Um, you know, it, it costs a lot of money to take care of and treat emergencies. As an emergency physician, I know that. Same thing, being in Haiti, uh, disaster relief and stuff that costs a lot of money. It brings about medical tourism, which can do different things to the economy, but it costs a lot of money. It's a lot cheaper to train other people and build capacity and pass on lessons and pass on insights, share information that can allow for that rebuilding process to occur. Yep. Which is why you know I've been doing a lot of stuff related to education. I've been doing a lot more speaking. Why we created Kavi, even yep. what we did in Haiti, the majority of it wasn't disaster uh, care. We weren't treating patients for most of that time. The most of that time was training other people and training drivers and laborers and, and, and helping build an emergency response system and then doing instructors courses that allowed those people who were on the ground in the north and northeastern part of, parts of Haiti to be able to do that work independent of people from outside their areas. So you've said it. You've said that pretty much prevention is the best sort of like... Yeah. Um, uh, the best way moving forward as mm-hmm. as someone who's in the heart of it, you know it, you've lived it, you see it all the time. Why aren't some of these sort of like philosophies transition over to the policy wise? Why not invest on the front end? I mean, you know you go for the work, you do a caveat and what I do a plot, you know, that's sort of like what we're trying to do, help those youngsters so they don't become that patient you're describing, you know, 20 years later. So 
Jim McKay oh, sexy, me. that's why. It ain't sexy. And my staff, they go, oh, gosh, he always says, uh, man, you know, you talk about sexy stuff. But no, it really, really it, when you're dealing with somebody on the front line and, and the images and all that kind of stuff, it, there's like an, it's an adrenaline rush. So, like, so you kind of call to this, this, this duty and it's a service and it's needed. Don't get me wrong. Yep. But the long, you know, sitting around, building, like I, I look at my, my notebook and stuff right now and I got tons of pages. This is just my notes that I write every day and I journal and, and take notes and go. And I got another notebook here that's it's already filled up. Like, like this one, just writing out ideas and going over this process over and over again to build something that can be sustainable and then going back to the drawing board when this stuff doesn't work and helping up build teams so that they can do this stuff independent uh, of me or, or some of the people that we work with. It's a long process and most people want immediate results. This is a, a, this is a very Twitter generation. Yeah, fast food. Accessible. And so people don't understand how long it takes to build or rebuild the community and to really nation build. I mean, yeah. our elders understand that stuff because they didn't have access to the same kind of tech that we have right now. But nation building, community engagement is long, it's boring, it, you're arguing with people, you don't always have the money to do what, what it takes to, to make it you know, look like how you, you'd envisioned it. And it's a tough process, but if you don't do the long-term building and the infrastructure development and the revision and creating systems that are adaptable, uh, that can withstand the test of time and adapt to different scenarios and different changes, then we're going to be having the same conversation next year. And I think a lot of people are very concerned about what the conversations sound like instead of what the outcomes of those conversations actually provide. Uh, and, and so, you know, like, you know, building an idea from, from square one, ex, you know, experimenting with new concepts, is, it's important. Uh, it's, it's well, this whole pathway of discovery, but it ain't pretty, it's not comfortable, it sucks, people are pissed at you, people are telling you you can't do this stuff, they're telling you this stuff is not effective at, at what, you're, what you're doing, and you kind of got to stay with it and be like, okay, we, we were confusing effort with results. So now how do we restructure and re-engineer re this process all over again to ensure that what we're creating and what we're putting together is going to be life-altering and life-changing? It's a process, man. And, and people aren't the discipline to, to stay. And that, that you know, what's that book, that book they call it The Grit? And, and the tenacity that, that people develop, hood hustle. Not everybody wants to do hood hustle stuff for things that are, that are pretty arduous or things that they don't understand. You know, you, you know I, I look at medicine itself. Like I've been a physician, so I'm 43. I have been studying things that have been tied to science and health and well-being for close to 30 years. If you include like junior high school and I think high school, like Queen of Fool was my neighbor. So I gotta give a shout out to Queen of Fool and Supernova Slam. Uh, who I grew up with, but like those are those are my early exposures to understanding about health and wellness. And then, then, then deciding to go to become a pre med student at Morehouse College. That was 1994, but I had already been studying biology and, and looking at wellness and, and reading about health before then. So we're talking about from 19 the early 90s up until 2020 that I'm looking at it's at issues related to health and wellness. 
and, and also doing community work back then because I, I wasn't, this is not new to me. You know, people think, oh, you just, you became a doc, you started, started doing community work. Nah, my dad's an activist. He, you know, my dad met Dr. King when he was in high school at a youth retreat and came back to the west side of Chicago talking about, yeah, we're going to build some stuff and change the community. My mother taught and, and, and has worked around, you know, in East Africa, went to school in, in, uh, in the U.S. and also East Africa and been in teaching people in marginalized spaces for a long time. So I, I see what, how long it takes for a lot of these community efforts. And so I, I've, I've been doing youth programming since I was in middle school, uh, high school, college, medical school, residency, as an attending physician. So this stuff is not new. I, every skill I, 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 I get a new, new skill and a new set of experiences every time this happens. And I add this one thing to the next. Matter of fact, many people don't even realize you know, like Kavi itself, or what eventually became Kavi, you know, sat on paper for many, many years, and just proposals were being revised over and over again. And I was doing some other work with our residency program at our Department of Emergency Medicine here in Brooklyn. And I was always doing the global health stuff because that was important to me. I never wanted to do violence intervention. I always wanted to do global health and build, build health systems. But working in Haiti in a resource-limited space and, and seeing what we were able to create with local leadership, they were also a part of our team. It wasn't like folks coming from the outside. We were engaging credible messengers without, it wasn't even called credible messengers back then, but we were engaging people, learning from them, bringing our own expertise and kind of creating these, these amalgamated uh, systems. And after doing that, I was like, man, if we're doing all this stuff in Haiti and building and creating sustainable systems, why can't I do that stuff back in Brooklyn? And so we went to launch in Kavi right after that with no money. And, you know, again, you know, it's not a perfect science. It ain't comfortable. You're going to spend your own money. You're going to lose sleep. You're going to be looking crazy. Hair falling out. <laughs> no. Your hair not, you know, just, you know, relationships being, you know, not being what you, you, you know, they should be because you're not spending time, yeah. but it's, there's a lot of energy and effort that goes into doing this kind of work. And then the next phase is building the team, that's gonna allow that vision to be carried out without you killing yourself. Yep. Um, one, one thing I, I wanna touch base on, and you know, it's, it's important as for anyone, not even just frontline workers or people or who are, who are um, in the hospital or working on the front lines, this is anyone who's in the helping profession, we have to, we have to understand this whole concept about what it means to be a martyr. You know, if you're a martyr and you die, because you're trying to fight this cause and you didn't build a system to allow for other people to assist you in that. So you're dead. Then yeah, what happens? Worthless. Then? You, no legacy. Mission, no legacy. And then, and then that mission that you've created or helped put together with your team and your circle. And, and you know, I'm a spokesperson for copy. I got an entire group of team and people who, who've been behind me and standing alongside with me and in front of me who are here or no longer here that made what we do possible. The same thing with, 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 within Haiti and yeah. every other project, but you got to build those teams. You got to build those systems because once we're gone, we ain't here. You can talk all you want about, you know, spirituality and your spirit living on. That's all well and good, but think of how much more you could accomplish if you were mentally, um, mentally uh, tough and mentally pliable and adaptable. If you went to your therapist, if you ate right, if you exercised properly, yep. if you minimize all these other external triggers that are always gonna be there, but being in a position to raise that threshold for what it is that you can tolerate and withstand 
so that you can continue doing that work, especially the boring stuff. Yep. You know, I, I was, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm kind of getting sidetracked, but you know, I, I do martial arts, I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and you know, with, with your brother, uh, who's an amazing martial artist, and you know, learning, you know, one thing about that the martial arts teaches you is you're gonna do something over and over and over again, and then do it over and over again, until you kind of achieve this level of mastery. And then you're gonna do it again, because then you start incorporating other elements. This is with any kind of skill sets, but the same thing needs to be applied to our wellness practices that allow us to be able to do this work. We bought into this whole concept of the martyr, and people are dying, um, and, and dying from things that could have been prevented had we implemented systems, had we you know, integrated certain wellness practices, and not necessarily kept borrowing from our, our, our reserves to the point that we can't function anymore. Yep. And so, you know, supportive spaces like, you know, I, I look at the brothers here uh, who are part of the podcast right now and being a support system to each other, making sure that you guys are eating properly, making sure you're checking in, like, yo, brother, you get that eight hours of sleep last night. You know, like that's a huge thing. Yo, you, you, left, you left that Popeye's fried chicken sandwich alone, right? You got some veggies. <laughs> you know, like, I go to I go to these supermarkets right now, and like the the non-perishables, there's nothing on there. The veggies are like massive, and it's like no touching them in the hood. Stacked up, stacked up. But they stacked up. They got pasta. They got rice. I ain't gonna lie though, Doctor. Go. I had one of those Popeyes chicken. I just had to have one. No, I didn't stand online for it. I just had one. Man, you know, I usually try to eat as healthy as possible, but it was great. But you talk about something strong point, and I'm gonna shut up and let the other fellas jump in. But self care. It's something that I think about often, too, because, again, as a young black man in this world, your, your existence is political, right? Literally, you know, you were just saying it. As a physician, getting from work, you got to think about how do you get from your door to the hospital safely? And that is, that's challenging to just live and be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I find myself, especially lately, being intentional about living. Yes. By just having fun. You know, like, okay, it's my last thousand dollars. I don't care. I'm flying somewhere, right? Like, I stay Airbnb with four other dudes. It doesn't matter because I have to live because a part of fighting injustice is living and taking care of yourself and taking care of each other. So you've been a great mentor when it comes to teaching us that. So I appreciate that. No, thank you, man. Dr. Gore. Your brother too, man. Yeah, he's... (laughs) Dr. Gore, you you referenced... um, Kavi a, a couple times. So, I mean, you know, just, uh, I think for, for people, I, yeah, I, I watched your, sort of your, your TED talk, um, you know, once Jim mentioned that you were, mm-hmm. you were going to join us for the pod and stuff. So I learned a little bit about it, but for folks that, that don't know, can you talk about the origin of Kavi and, um, you know, what Kavi is meant to achieve? So Kavi itself, uh, Kavi is an acronym for the Kings Against Violence Initiative. It's also a Sanskrit word that means thinker and doer. Um, Kavi itself evolved we weren't even calling it back in the, in the old days, but he evolved into a program to focus on providing resources for young people coming from marginalized communities, um, particularly those who were impacted by violence and trauma. Uh, violence and trauma is, is everywhere. It's a physical process that we experience, uh, particularly those of us who grew up and spent time in central Brooklyn. It, it's a physical process. It's a mental process. It's where you live. It's how we address uh, each other. And so many of us are experiencing trauma and we don't even realize that it's trauma. We just kind of chalk it up and by, oh, that's how things are supposed to be. 
until it starts to impact our life, our overall health and well-being, whether as a victim or survivor of gun violence or stabbing or as someone who's dealing with PTSD and anxiety because of physical abuse and, and, and stressors that have been historic uh, in your life and the life of your family, but yet we haven't always had the safe space to be able to process that stuff. Um, all the resources. One of the things you say often, which I use all the time, as I told you, if, if you're charging me every time I use it, you'll be a millionaire now. You wouldn't have to raise money for your own Airbnb, which we got to talk about. We need to raise uh, some folks, money. Folks there's no way you should be paying for your out, own man. Airbnb. Now, I'm, I, I know. have some friends to help raise some money, so we're, we're, we're good for right now. Yeah, I'm going to hit up some more friends. Um, but one of the things you always say is that hurt people hurt people, right? Uh, I, I use that all the time. And that's on every level, right? That's from the, the president down um, to, to the lowest guy in central Brooklyn that we talked about. Can you, and, and that is the essence of Kavi, right? Right. It's the essence, so hurt people hurt people. If you've experienced any kind of trauma and you're not in a position to process that stuff and you're angry and upset, that first person that comes to you, it may maybe with good intentions or maybe bad intentions, you're not going to deal with that situation to the best of your ability because you are not completely there. Uh, if you are processing your own trauma, or not processing, you're dealing with trauma and loss, and somebody happens to step on you, you, your fresh new J's, you might go off on them like, yo, and the person could have tripped and fallen. You know, we got mad cracks in the sidewalk. Uh, and he's flatbush. And so you tripped, you stumbled, you stepped on somebody's new J's, but because you were having a bad day because you lost your homie, some one of your relatives passed away, you got fired from your job, your old lady- Can't pay the bills, you hungry, yeah. whatever it is. You hungry, you know, you missed that. And on top of that, they ran out of chicken sandwiches at, at the chicken spot. You, know, <laughs> you got a lot of things that you- It's on. You can't get a spliff. Can't get Somebody a Somebody just sold you some bush. Yo, they, they, they sold you some dirt weed and stuff like You got all these things that you're dealing with and somebody trips because, you know, they, they, they tripped and stumbled on their way to work and they stepped on your new J's. Now you got folks that are going head, uh, head to head because one person didn't recognize that, wow, you know what, that was a mistake. My bad. It wasn't even, it wasn't even on purpose. I can understand if it was intentional, but it wasn't even on purpose. And so what happens is, you have this cycle that happens, you know, it kind of goes back to what's the, the ancient Mesopotamian code of Hammurabi, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yep. So if somebody attacks you physically, verbally, it's imperative that you respond aggressively because that's what we've been taught. Yep. Um, because if you don't, then it's going to set you up for a bunch of opportunities so people can take advantage of you. That's exactly and right. It's like this, it's this system that we, that we create that, um, that allows us to, that's perfect for a state of survival. But, we don't even know, we, right now, we don't even know what we're fighting for. We don't even know what we're trying to survive for. And so it, it's, you know, you mentioned really, you know, a little bit earlier, being intentional. Um, being intentional means understanding your body position, understanding where you are mentally. If you aren't in a great mood, finding out a place where you can go to get access to those resources. Yeah. However, these conversations don't happen. And yeah. so we assume that we're supposed to just toughen it up and, and stay proud and lock that, lock that stuff inside of us and then just deal with it whenever. And yep. so you know, we talk a lot about deep-seated trauma that our elders have passed on to us because yeah. they were never- You talked about that, my dad, right? Yeah. I mean, Not you were telling me, he's like, yo, Jay, look, he, the truth is, you know, he didn't have the tools to communicate that love to you and that compassion. And so the cycle continues. And 
So as you said earlier, a lot of times it's not about the Jordan. The Jordan has nothing to do with the moment. Yeah. Um, the Jordan is just that, that catalyst in that moment that, you know, brings up all the other traumas you've been dealing with. Yeah. And That's so what I wanted to, you know, I wonder, I wonder. Oh, hey, Ed, let me, let me kind of jump in real quick. I, I just want, I want to get us back to sudden real quick. Cause I was just thinking like, what, if I was a listener, you know, some of the questions I would be wanting to hear from Dr. Gore, because a lot of our listeners aren't just in Brooklyn, right? They're all over the country and everyone's COVID experience is totally different. I mean, I was on like a call with someone's family member recently and they're somewhere else and they're thinking that like, you know, this is, this is kind of not a lie, but <laughs> are people really dying? Is this really real? I'm actually curious, when did you all as medical professionals, because you're already busy as is, there are already trauma you're dealing with regardless of COVID. When did you all start realizing, oh, this is serious, need to start ramping up? So I, I came back to, I went, I went away with my wife for vacation um, in like mid-March. And I'm watching the news reports and stuff like that while we were away. And I'm like, oh, shoot, all these folks are dying in Italy. And then they started talking about a case popped up in Seattle and, and like an isolated case in New York. And I, when I came back from vacation, I got back at like maybe midnight or 1 a.m. And on, on like early Sunday morning, I was back in the ER 11 p.m. And I saw my first COVID-19 patient. And this is a dude who was previously healthy. He's a uh, soccer player um, out in the community and said, I've been getting short of breath for the past two weeks. And I looked at his x-ray. I looked at this dude, his oxygen levels, and he was sick as shit. And then there was another guy, early 50s, similar symptoms. And at the time, we were only having attending physicians, one attending physician and one nurse take care of those patients because we didn't want to minimize exposure to everybody else. But every day, like over the next two to three days, I'm like, those numbers were doubling and tripling. And I'm like, yo, stuff got real. And then when I, then in that short period of time, I started uh, having friends who were in different parts of the United States who were cut, diagnosed with COVID-19 and really and super sick, either staying in home or being hospitalized. I'm like, wow, this got very real. And so this was uh, pretty early on. So I'm, we're like around, I want to say week number six of dealing with COVID-19 patients. Uh, like this is my, this, the middle of the, start of my fifth week of staying in Airbnb. So about five and a half weeks, like it's been, it's been nonstop and it, it increased right now. And we didn't also, we didn't always have the help that we needed, but uh, we took it very seriously. For one, we, you know, in our departments of emergency medicine, uh, we have a disaster medicine division. As an emergency physician, part of our training like you wear, you want to putting on crazy ass masks like this and spacesuits is a part of your training. And you got to go through disaster drills and disaster preps. Some might be, you know, if there's an active shooter drill or another one might be a bioterrorist attack. Like you're always prepping and trying to figure out how you can manage emergencies. Uh, so we, we took this stuff seriously. Now the general public is a little bit different. Um, you know, when Jim mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, I, I talked about what we're seeing right now and the closest experience I have was, was to be what, what it was like working in Haiti during the earthquake. During the Haiti, during, Haiti during the earthquake, you know, I was down there about four weeks, three and a half, four weeks after the quake. And um, you could see all these buildings that were crumbling and the rubble and stuff in Port-au-Prince that was like super beautiful before. And now these houses and stuff, we just like had fallen into valleys or to see the, um, the uh, capital 
um, the president's, the presidential palace to see yeah. that br pr brilliant, pristine building. Beautiful building. He just like collapsed. And I was there the previous year, so it was like really bone chilling. And to walk around some of these collapsed buildings, whether it's the old the nursing school on the side of the university hospital, where you could smell the decomposing bodies from the nursing students who are still who were in there, um, and when they were in class, it, it it leaves an imprint on you. No matter who you are, if you're a healthcare worker or somebody who's on the ground uh, as a as a citizen, and so you see the devastation. With COVID-19, you don't see that unless, of course, you're in the hospital or you're taking care of a loved one who's been affected by it. You know, to go up in one of our, to one, I get phone calls and text messages all the time from friends uh, to check on their loved ones. Like, yo, my loved one got taken to your hospital or this other hospital. You... I was one of them. Yeah. When I couldn't get in. I'm like, I got to call my, <laughs> I got to call Dr. Gore. Not any visitors in. But when you, when you reached out, there were multiple people who reached out to me that same day. Your father, I'd known him before because I had seen him once before. I got another text from a friend that I hadn't seen in maybe a couple years. I just bumped into him when I was dropping off stuff, uh, supplies to someone that couldn't really leave the house. Saw him, and I got a text message from him the next day. He's like, yo, can you go check on my dad? He's at your hospital. Uh, he got taken. I'm like, okay. I was like, what's his first name? And I'm like, oh, shucks, he was already my patient. Um, you know, having to have conversations with people and to, you know, take up your, your smartphone. And, you know, before we were using, like, the iPads and stuff like that to communicate with loved ones, but have to FaceTime with a woman who wanted to sign her, her mother out against medical advice because she couldn't eyeball her mother. And she was like, my mom's still in the ER and nothing, you, know, you guys aren't doing anything for them. I'm like, she's being cared for in the ER, but we can't take her to another hospital because all those hospitals are filled to capacity. At least we got folks who can care for her right here. And I showed, I, I was like, can I, I was like, I think you want to see your mom. I think you just want to see her. And like I said, some other things, but I'm, I'm talking to her. I got my freaking space suit on mask. You can't see my face. This mask a lot better. At least you can see my eyeballs and see my mouth. She could only see my, my, my eyes. Uh, we couldn't, we couldn't even, uh, she couldn't see my face, but I FaceTimed her with her mother. Her mother was pretty sick on a ventilator. And like, she was like taking it back, like almost like, like, sh like really shaken up. Like, oh my gosh, that's my mother with all these tubes in and out of her and this machine helping her breathe. You don't know if, if somebody can text, you know, can describe what that looks like. It doesn't have the same impact as you seeing it. And that's what we're dealing with with COVID-19 cases. If you can see the stuff that's happening outside in the streets, you would have a, it'd be a very different impact and you'd understand social distancing more. Yeah. But when you go up to the hospital, you see all the, you hear in the code 99s that are happening, which means there was a cardiac arrest. And that means another person died. And that means another bed is opening up. So at least from one point, it's like, I'm kind of sad that somebody lost their life, but I'm kind of happy in the sense that there's a bed that opens up, which means I got another critical care bed that I can send a patient who's critically, uh, who has a critical illness, they can go be monitored a lot more effectively. And, and even for someone like me, Dr. Gore, it's, it's such a big difference when I'm home, right? When I'm in East Flatbush across from the hospital yeah. versus when I'm in Park Slope or downtown Brooklyn, Cobble Hill, wherever it is, it's such a different reality, right? Like when I'm home, it's, it's in your face. You see it, you feel it. 
it becomes real to you. I mean, it wasn't real to me in that sense until I got to the hospital that day. Right. And you saw the right? tents. You see, you see tents lined up on the hospital, people doing Crazy. screens, everybody walking around in spacesuits, and you're hearing these codes, these these sounds over the loudspeaker, and you're like, yo, shit just got real. Yep. And, you know, when we were, I mean, we were interviewing with CNN uh, a few weeks ago, and they came By the way, downstate. CNN, he's a CNN hero, so way before COVID-19. Um, for those of you listening, please check out Dr. Gore, his TED Talk, Kavi doing great work. Go online, donate, and help him do more of this work. So just thank you. I'm sorry I cut you oh, off, no, but we got to get that in there. No, thank you. Um, but like when um, CNN was there and they were trying to interview, you know, there, there was one lady who came in right when I was waiting to, to start my interview, um, came in confused, altered and wound up dying within like 10 minutes. Once she wound up coding between when I saw her out in the ambulance ramp, you know, somebody else took her in the ER because she was seizing. She wound up dying 10 minutes after that. You also heard, kept hearing the code 99s while you were being interviewed and they had to stop the interviews because uh, you just kept hearing this, this thing over and over. And those were people who were dying in the hospital, um, likely due to COVID-19 cases. And, you know, you know, I know you, you guys live right by the hospital. To hear the sirens day in and day out, all hours of the day, to go, to walk down the street, not even drive, just to walk around the corner and see all the tents. It's traumatic. It's so bad for, for, for my mental health. I mean, I don't know how you do it being in the heart of it. No, well, no, I, the wellness practices become really important. Like, I'm, I'm working out every single day. I can't go to the dojo, but, you know, like, I got workout mats. I got a kettlebell. I'm doing push-ups and calisthenics. I do my daily meditation at least 30 minutes to an hour a day. I'm doing Qigong exercises. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Qigong, it's like it's an internal martial art. Uh, just to kind of, you got to keep focused. The goal is to, you know, you know, having those pockets of time where you can reflect and process what you're dealing with is the only way that you can manage dealing with these stressors and dealing with these triggers so that it doesn't consume you. Um, I don't text people back right away. And sometimes I don't text them back at all it's not, I don't, it's not on, it is done deliberately. I'm not going to say it's not done intentionally, uh, but sometimes I'm, I get so many messages of people checking in and I don't, I'm not able to process all that stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I've been dealing with cases. I've been dealing with patients. I've been dealing with family members. I had a rough shift or, you know, I told some people, some friends of mine that their loved ones were dying or going to die um, or, or died. Because, you know, you find out when you go to the hospital and you look their, look their information up, uh, it's a lot to process. And you got to disconnect. Um, you know, Just going on that, Dr. Gore. Yep. I mean, that brings something up that's really interesting. I, I wanted to ask, sort of, you know, as a healthcare profession, as a front lines person, as an essential worker um, in the place where all of this is going down, after this is over, I assume, I'm, I'm really interested to see... Uh, just like the healthcare industry and how it's impacted, are there going to be people less willing to go into it? And are there people that are going to be currently in it that want to leave the field? And then, but also, you know, obviously being a healthcare person, you all are going to deal with a certain, a specific kind of PTSD. You know, what do you think, um, you know, kind of two things on that. What do you think will happen? Um, but also what do you think, what, uh, what should happen? You know, obviously those can, can be two distinct things. Right. So it's in, so there's some people who are willing and able and they're going to step up to the plate. Um, I have a, a number of mentees who are graduating medical school 
Uh, early on, they're going to be starting with us in emergency medicine. They're part of a pipeline program that I launched about 10, 11 years ago. Like they're willing and able and they're like, yo, this is why I decided to go into healthcare. Cause I'm seeing all this stuff impact me and my family members. My little cousin uh, is graduating from Morehouse virtually um, in May cause he can't walk um, because of that. But he's, he's already been accepted to university of Pennsylvania school of medicine. So shout out to my little cousin, Sam Curry. Uh, um, shout out to Sam Nashville. Uh, but Sam is like, look, man, this is what I've been prepping for. Um, you know, he's a D1, uh, not D1, he's a, a college All-American athlete, 400 meter hurdles. Uh, he pushes his body to the limit and is uh, graduating uh, summa cum laude from Morehouse and got into medical school. And so he's been prepping himself for a long time to deal with stressful situations. And, you know, we, we know we've chatted and he's like, man, I, I'm, I'm ready to do this. And so you find what people are made of during these types of tragedies. And you're going to get a lot of people who are stepping up and people who are going to be repurposing their career paths and career trajectories because they recognize it like, you know what, I'm making money for other people and not doing something that's really meaningful. I'm not having that kind of human impact that I always wanted. Uh, and so now this is an opportunity to kind of explore and re reinvest in what it is that you wind up doing. And so you get a lot of that. But then you also have people who've been doing this stuff for a while who lost loved ones uh, in this and colleagues, you know, like I got, I have some colleagues right now who were super, super sick and we're praying for them right now. Uh, and again, these are folks that um, I work very closely with for the past 14 years who've helped, helped groom me, who've helped, helped me out in so many different situations and, and are uh, amazing human beings and to find out that they're on life support in, in, in intensive care units it's, it's, it's pretty tough. And so some people are going to kind of have to take a step back and be like, you know what, I've seen too much tragedy right now. So I need to do something different. I'll still help people out, but right, I can right. do it in a different space. But that's, that's how life just works anyway. You know, one person passes the torch or a series of people pass on that torch to the next person, right. the next person, the next person, so that you have this continuum. So speaking from, of Dr. Gore. Oh, Jim, real quick on that. I just I want to follow a question on that. From a COVID standpoint, right? I mean, this is pretty. This is a pretty, um, you know, unprecedented sort of a historical thing that's happened. Do you think the healthcare industry, in terms of uh, um, its popularity as a profession, do you think at, after it's all done, there'll be like a net negative or a net positive? Just like you, you know, what your opinion? I think it's going to be a, a net positive. Uh, I remember like the TV show ER when that came out. A lot of people decided to go into emergency medicine. I didn't see the TV show until after I decided I was going into emergency medicine. Um, but if you expose people to something and you see what, not the negative aspects of that work, but the positive good that people can do in those spaces, you'll get people who, wow, who go, wow, you know, I have an interest in this stuff right now and I never thought about it before. The same thing with infectious diseases or just being on as a frontline person in the helping professions. It doesn't have to be as a healthcare worker per se, um, one of my best friends from college, a brother named Jay Green. So I got to give a shout out to him. Uh, Jay has a company that has been training teachers in school districts on how to access the tech within their school. This is pre-COVID-19. Uh, then also pre-COVID-19, this is last year, they've said, you know, we need to augment our platform. So now we're going we're gonna to do all this stuff virtually so we can reach larger audiences locally and, and overseas so other people can benefit from our area of expertise. COVID-19 hits, pandemic hits, 
education and how it's been being delivered and how things are being taught, he's super even busier now than he was before right. because right. he'd already been setting that stuff off. He's got a right. bag, he's a chemistry major and got a, and has a master's in education and an MBA. So he's melded all these different skill sets together. And now people in the on the education front, even in New York City, because New York City is one of them, uh, some of the school districts in Brooklyn are part of his market that he uh, that he's accessed, are benefiting from those services. So it doesn't necessarily have to be as a healthcare worker per se, but just as a concerned citizen and somebody who sees the need and linking up with, you know, providing resources and support and infrastructure uh, to these different social determinants um, that influence our health and well-being. And this is from whether you're in business, whether you're in tech, whether you're doing policy, whether you're doing education and consulting, medicine, uh, if you are a food person and an agriculturalist, like how do you minimize and mitigate the uh, food deserts that exist? Because if you don't have health, you know, we look at illnesses itself as a stressor. And I know I'm, I'm kind of, I know Jim has always talked a lot about housing as being an issue that relates to people's health and well-being. It is. But every, in order for you to fight off an infection, you got to minimize those stressors and you have to have that recovery period. If your living situation has been compromised, you don't have access to healthy food. You already have a pre-existing illness, which, which uh, affects your ability to fight off infections. If you don't have the money to purchase your medication, your supportive medication, to buy your food, if you're moving from couch to couch to couch to couch to bench, um, how are you going to be well? You're not going to be sleeping. You're not going to be sleeping properly, and so you know. And then you get stressed. You may smoke a joint, or you start okay. drinking, and then just you know right. to you deal with the stress. You don't have outlets that you're adding on. Yep. Well, you completely yeah, characterize what black segregated neighborhoods, you know, deal with. What what you know how how they're hurting exactly like um, what makes them such a right place for this this pandemic to just completely destroy. Right. So I, you know, that's just long systemic policy that's that yeah. sets that up as a pre-existing condition already. I got a quick health question. Uh, Dr. Gore, you've seen like hundreds, if not thousands of cases at this point. And like on our end, we constantly read there's main symptoms. Basically, if you're not breathing right, go in. Other than that, stay at home, which you already said. But, you know, I remember early on, it was like 90 percent of cases had a fever if they were super serious is that still what you're seeing for people who by the time they get in or has that changed so i see patients who have fever uh, but not everybody has fever sometimes they may be altered and confused like it's almost like you have this like dementia just like set in like all of a sudden um because of this infection and these are younger people and older people so imagine like a 41 year old um who comes in and they're like somebody's great great uncle from world war one uh who's got mild dementia and these are what we're seeing with some of these cases they're, they're coming in fever they're coming in chills they're coming with bad body aches what we refer to as myalgias they're coming in with shortness of breath they're coming in dizzy they're coming in lightheaded they're coming in fatigued they're coming in with their blood sugar all out of whack and so they've been peeing very frequently uh they're coming in with headaches they're coming in with every it complicates every given symptom problem that you already had. Uh, they're coming in with their heart racing. Uh, and, you know, so they'll have like a crazy heart rhythm. That's not everybody, but we're seeing a, a wide range of a wide spectrum of different, of different presentations. It's not like everybody's coming in with cough, runny nose and fever. Uh, they come in with, you know, they can, it can run, it can run the gamut. 
But as far Got as it. people come in and the ones we tell come in, if you're if you're feeling dizzy and lightheaded and it doesn't get better after you drink some water, juice, or Gatorade or some or take some Tylenol, then you might need to come in. If you're having trouble breathing, you probably need to come in. Uh, and we're not like, oh, I coughed two days ago. That's not trouble breathing. That's a freaking cough. You live in New York City. You got a lot of dirt and pollution, and on top of that, pollen. Um, but if you are struggling to to get air in your system, then you probably need to come to the hospital. There are people who we've who've taken care of that are having strokes because they they haven't had access to their blood pressure medication, their diabetes medication, and COVID nineteen is an additional stressor onto what they already have, and they're coming in with strokes. So let, there's so many different wide range and spectrums. When I have somebody who doesn't have symptoms or who's not considered to be COVID-19 positive, I'm like, oh, wow, we're surprised now. Non-COVID-19 patients in our hospital and like downstate is a COVID-19 hospital. It's the, it's the exception now when somebody doesn't have those symptoms, not the rule. Are you also at capacity? Um, we, every, every day we, you know, we get these emails from the departments uh, regarding what new changes are taking place throughout the hospital. Uh, we have more, many more ICU beds. We have physicians. Who, uh, so the ER doesn't seem as busy because you got space upstairs. And like before people wait in the, wait in the hospital in the emergency department for a bed, maybe for a day, two days sometimes. Uh, and even you know, during the peak of COVID-19 cases, even longer than that. And so it's hard to manage new emergencies when the old stuff is still there. You just don't have the space. And so now like we are, we have more ICU beds available. We have nurses that have come and nurse practitioners that have literally come from all from out of states, states right? that are working and providing services. There are physicians that are coming from all over the U.S. that are working with us. There are EMTs that are coming from all over. There's a friend of mine from residency. Uh, we trained together in Chicago. Uh, he's an ER doc in uh, Seattle. Uh, their cases have been going down and, you know, they don't need their, you know, as men, they have a lot of openings for, for us to get some help. And so he flew to New York City and he's working with us for the next week or two weeks. Um, they were, um, the other day when I was on shift, uh, the you know, EMS brought in a woman who was altered and confused uh, even more. She had a stroke in the past. Uh, she had seizures. She had a, a bunch of different problems. She also wound up being COVID-19 positive. But like this woman, the EMS that brought her in, uh, they were apologizing. They were like, oh, I'm sorry we didn't call in right away. Or we weren't sure where we're supposed to take her in, in relation to the ER because they were from Ohio. So you had oh. EMTs. They drove their ambulance rig from Ohio and have been working with the fire department of New York. They're coming from Texas. They're coming, literally coming from around the U.S. to provide services. And, and we're, we're super thankful uh, for that because if not for them, uh, we, we wouldn't be dealing with this, these issues as well. A lot more people would have died. Well, we're super thankful to you. I really appreciate you as a brother and everything you've done. Um, I can keep going, but I'll let the other fellas see yeah, if they have any last I, questions. I got to head out, though, um, oh, no. uh, pretty soon. Um, but we, we got to continue, continue this dialogue. Um, yeah. So, uh, Dr. Gore, this podcast, hopefully when we get back to some sense of regularity, whatever that, that means, we... we we're going to start hosting some in-person conversations. I mean, now it's probably not until 2021, but obviously we want to, we want to have you again. Oh, let's do it. Dialogue as the four of us with, you know, a room um, with about 50 people or so. And, and obviously we, we want to get your work out there and 
by the way, I post a lot of you on my page on my Instagram. That's by design. I mean, part of it is obviously the things you do, but the other side is me exploiting your image because I, I want my son to see more of you on TV. I'm sorry, but the, the possibility of him becoming a LeBron James, which is what he sees all the time, mm-hmm. is almost slim to none. And I want him to see more images of you. I want I you're not, to see more images you're of not you. Happy, you're not happy with the Surgeon General? Your son watching the Surgeon General <laughs> and all the things he has to say? Is that not helpful? We were going to finish this on a positive note. Now you fucking with me. You got to do that. I fucking meathead. Um, oh, boy. Jeez, just tell our grandpapas and big mamas to stop drinking Henny. That's it. We solved the problem. You know? <laughs> Leave the Henny alone. <laughs> um, anyway, we, I'm just very grateful for you, man. So I'm always going to keep pushing the work you do because, um, and that's the other thing I wanted to ask you. Like, I mean, look, the fact that I can text you, right? I know you're getting so many text messages and you can give me some updates and that level of connection and insight you have you know, we can't find too many of that where we're from, and we need a lot more of it. So I'm, no, I can't sure. tell you how grateful I am I mean, when young brothers can look up and look at you and say, you know what, I'm gonna become a doctor. No, but that's why I came back to Brooklyn. Like it was, it was that was done by design yep. uh, because you know people leave and they don't necessarily come back. I mean, a lot more people <laughs> just stay in New York and never leave. But right. um, you know, it was intentional to come back and practice in my hospitals. Even just like I think about things like right now. Um, being able to check on your family and get updates yeah. from docs and, and, and other people around who reach out. Like it's, it's important to do that because if we can get, you know, find out what's going on with your loved ones, that keeps your, your anxiety down, which allows you to be able to do the more, more purposeful work that you've already started and are trying to continue. And so uh, this is, this is a, it's a cycle. It's a part of this continuum where we, we wind up supporting each other whenever, uh, in whatever way possible. Appreciate it. And um, hopefully when this is all done, unlike the liberal politicians, who's a bunch of them is going to honor you without actually changing the infrastructure, <laughs> things that you're talking about. That's what they do. But hopefully when this is all done, we can show some appreciation to you in, oh, no, in whichever way possible. That, we appreciate you, man. Y'all, you guys be safe, be healthy, stay at home. And, uh, man, we'll talk soon. I appreciate it. Dr. Gore. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks, Dr. Gore. Peace.